That may be a new song for us as a church, but it's actually been around for a while, and we were preparing for this week. Phil said, oh, I've got a, an oldie but goodie picked out, and I guess it meets the criteria for an oldie. It's over 25 years old, um, but that song is based on a true oldie that we'll be looking at today that's about 2,500 years old from the book of Psalms. That's where we find ourselves in this current series that we're in here at The Journey. Uh, we're looking at what's called the Psalms of Ascent. This is Psalm 120 through 134. It's a particular section of the Psalms in the Old Testament that were songs of pilgrimage. There were certain times in the year when the Jewish people would, would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for certain festivals, and these Psalms were the soundtrack to that journey, that pilgrimage. And we're calling this series A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's based on the title of a book by Eugene Peterson where he talks about these particular psalms and draws out their correlations between pilgrimage and our current journey, our life with Jesus. And there are many. So last week, Pastor Tom kicked us off looking at Psalm 120 and got into the idea of the beginning point of the pilgrimage, the beginning point of our journey, which is kind of a leaving behind of what we've known and where we've been in pursuit of a different direction. And a literal pilgrimage starts with leaving where you are Go somewhere else. And so our walk with Jesus does begin and, and is generated by a sort of leaving behind of what we've known, what we've believed, in pursuit of something else that God has for us. Um, I can relate, I could relate a lot to what he was sharing last week. I thought of my own life in a point where I felt like I'd had enough. Eugene Peterson talks about the, the point where you've, you've had enough of the world's lies that you've been fed and, and you want the truth, you want something deeper and, and truer instead. When I was a college student is when I really came to a living faith in God, and I don't have a story of turning to God out of a really dark point in my life or, or kind of hitting bottom or something like that. I actually turned in the midst of sort of a high point or a peak in many ways in my life where things were all going great in some terms. I'd gotten into the university of my choice, interning at my dream job, had been enjoying all the sort of benefits of a social life that college has to offer. And I got to that point and, and just kind of felt like, this is it? Like everything I'd been promised and fed growing up about what would be a life that would, that would be fulfilling and make me complete and whole, it just felt really underwhelming. I'm grateful I had a community of friends at that point to point me to Jesus and, and start me off on this way of pilgrimage. Now maybe some of you have had a moment like that in your life where you you turned and began to follow Jesus. Maybe some of you are considering that, whether that's something you'd uh, take the plunge and do. Uh, maybe some of you don't really remember a point when your journey with God started, but uh, the, the fuel for it and the beginning point is always what we called last week repentance, kind of a turning from something and a turning to Jesus. Pastor Tom talked about a couple of choices that we continually make along this journey. One, to step away from lies we've been told toward the truth of God, and a continuing choice to step away from the hostility and hatred of the world and pursue the grace and peace of Jesus. But this, this pilgrimage always begins with a turning and a leaving behind to go somewhere. And the rest of these psalms will then fill out, well, what does that journey look like? What are we stepping into? And we'll begin there today with Psalm 121, the next one. So if you have a Bible you want to follow along, or if you're using the Pew Bible, I believe it's on page 440 of most of the the ones that we provide. We'll start to dive into this journey that we're getting into. 
this long obedience in the same direction. Psalm 121 reads, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. So we begin our pilgrimage with a kind of leaving one thing, pursuing something else. So what is it? Now, I would assume if we're going to leave one thing behind in pursuit of something different, that, that something different would be something better. Right? Why leave where you've been, what you've been doing, unless uh, there's something better out there? Well, what is that? Are we, are we now stepping into a life where there's no more trouble, where all of our problems disappear, our worries go away, and, and nothing bad will ever happen to us anymore? Is that the promise of life with Jesus? You could almost see how Psalm 121 might be saying that, right? The Lord will keep you from all harm. Is that a promise if, we, if we're kind of in relationship with God that bad stuff will stop happening to us? That's actually a message that's preached in one form or another in churches really all over the world, near and far. Uh, kind of give your life to Jesus Christ. Put your faith in God and your, your problems will be solved. Your diseases will be cured. Your depression will lift. Your bank account will begin to prosper more. You'll find that soulmate God has designed for you and have a trouble-free marriage and all the babies that you want and they'll all be great. And you'll find that vocation and that thing to do in this world that's a perfect match for the unique, beautiful ways you've been created and all that sort of thing. Now, despite... Uh, overwhelming amount of evidence to the contrary in the lives of believing people. This is a popular message, and, and it sells, and why not? It, it does sound pretty good. You know, put your faith in God and everything's going to get better. Well, it, it actually does people a disservice, for one, because then, you know, if you put your faith in God and you struggle, then it must, well, what, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your faith? That's actually, can be harmful, but also it's just not true. It's not true at all. And another person I thought of who, who um, kind of took a line from a psalm out of context and, and built a message like this around it was actually the devil. If you remember, in the early parts of the Gospels, Jesus has a period of being tempted in the wilderness, in the desert. One of the big temptations the devil puts before him is he takes Jesus up to a high place and says, hey, throw yourself down and, and let God catch you. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. And then he quotes a psalm, sounds kind of like this one, like the Lord won't let any harm come to you. It's going to be okay. If God's really with you, nothing bad will happen to you. Jesus essentially tells him to shut up in, in not so many words, knowing that his mission, his calling is a life of sacrifice, and, and suffering on our behalf, he's not going to be derailed by that. And, and so, you know, the devil says, well, it is written, God won't let anything bad happen to you. And Jesus replies by saying, well, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He doesn't let the devil take scripture out of context and twist it around. It's so easy to do that. But he knows the whole of the story. And he knows all that is promised by God. There is a promise here in Psalm 121 I don't want to disregard that, but the promise is not a life without trouble, 
a life without pain and a life without suffering if you walk with God. It's not that at all. As a matter of fact, this psalm begins out of a context of trouble. Someone who needs help is lifting up their eyes, wondering where will the help come from. It's not specified what the issue is, what the problem or struggle that this person is having, but they're in a place of needing help and wondering where to turn, where do I look? Do I look to the hills? I lift my eyes to the mountains or to the hills. Where does my help come from? It begins with that question. Eugene Peterson notes that the mountains or the hills in this context when the psalm was written would have a particular meaning. It was actually the place of kind of pagan worship or idolatrous worship in that time. There was one mountain, Mount Zion, where God uh, called his people to come and worship, but there are hills and mountains all over the place, and on every one of them in ancient Israel was some kind of shrine and some kind of temple that people had built to some deity, some idol that promised quick fixes to life's problems. If you're in trouble, just look to Baal on one of these temples, one of these shrines, or Asherah, or some deity like that, and they'll, they'll fix it. They'll give you the help that you need. If you just say the magic words, or perform the right sacrifice, or the right ritual, or pay the right price, or take the, take the special stone, or something like that, uh, there were all kinds of quick, easy promises coming from the mountains and to the hills to people who needed help. And the question is, well, where are we going to look? Where does our help really come from? And verse 2 provides a very decisive answer. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It doesn't come from the mountains. It doesn't come from the hills or anything on them, but from the God who made the mountains and made the hills to begin with. He is the one who gives us our help. He is the one to turn to in times of trouble. And that's what pilgrimage is. It's not stepping into a life filled with ease free of trouble, but a life of learning where to turn when trouble comes, learning to turn to the Lord for our help. That's the journey of pilgrimage. And it's been an ancient struggle for God's people and continues to be to this day, to not look to the hills, to not look to other easy quick fixes or, or flashy promises, but to learn to look to the Lord where we need help and where we're in trouble. The prophet Jeremiah a long time ago said this, Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. We've got to learn where to look when we're in trouble, not to look to God to get us out of trouble altogether. Psalm 121, it doesn't promise us a life without problems, but it does promise us something. It promises us what Eugene Peterson calls in his book Providence. Providence. It's a fancy old Christian word. It's come to mean a lot of different things, but one definition that's in the dictionary that I think fits what we're talking about here is the protective care of God. The protective care of God. Something that from now on, for the pilgrim, for the one walking with God, we are never without God's care, his loving, watchful attention on our lives you know, suffering is a painful thing. That's what makes it suffering. But man, is suffering compounded when you feel like you're all alone in it? When you're in the darkness, when you're cut off and isolated, when nobody cares, nobody seems to possibly understand what you're going through. Suffering is deeply compounded that way, but that's a type of suffering that Christians never have to experience ever again. We will experience suffering 
of all and various kinds, but never the kind that is alone, isolated, and without someone who cares, someone who watches, someone who gets it. That's the promise of Psalm 121. The Lord watches over us. That's the most repeated phrase in this psalm, you may have noticed. It comes up five times. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This is not a long psalm, so for something to be repeated five times, it's a real point of emphasis. This is what God wants us to understand, that he is watching over us, that his watchful, loving, gracious, caring eyes are on us at all times, no matter what we're going through. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, that the promise of this psalm is not that we shall never stub our toes, but that no injury, no illness, no accident, no distress will have evil power over us. That is, we'll be able to separate us from God's purpose in us. Again, not that nothing bad will happen, but that nothing bad that can happen could separate us from God, could separate us from his loving care, and could separate us from his presence in our lives. Nothing can do that. That's the promise. So the big idea for our psalm today is this, that our journey with Christ in this world will never be without trouble but that none of that trouble will have the power to separate us from God. Nothing can separate us from God's care and purposes in our lives. That's the promise of Psalm 121. I'll read a little bit more from Peterson's take on this. He says, The Christian life is going to God. And in going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens under the same governments, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, and are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know that we are ruled by God. Every step we take no matter what. God is present with us, ruling lovingly over our lives. While we are still subject to the same things that anyone else is subject to. An example of that, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, your body breaks down pretty much the same way that any other body breaks down. And as a 41-year-old guy, uh, I'm not you know, Tom Brady, my fellow 41-year-old guy, I can't really afford his diet, the, the TB12 method, but I, I keep in fairly good shape and am blessed with, with pretty good health. But nevertheless, I know that my physical peak is somewhere behind me, <laughs> growing a little bit more distant each day. And, and I feel it a lot lately, kind of a, a lack of the energy that I used to have. Now, is this a crisis? Well, I, uh, last week we had our, our monthly men's breakfast here at the Journey downstairs, and it just so happened that I was at a table where I, w- I was the youngest guy there by, by a fair amount, you know, and some of the guys actually had a few decades on me. And somehow it came up, and I, I shared, oh, gosh, I just don't feel like I have the energy, the strength that I, that I used to have. And yeah, that was the reaction. These guys just laughed and laughed. I mean, it was so funny. That, like, I told a, a really funny joke. I wasn't trying to be funny, but 
They said, oh, just you wait. You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> and it was funny, but they were so at ease with the whole thing. And honestly, even though they may have had a laugh at my expense, I found it tremendously reassuring and comforting. It's good to be with people who've been walking this long obedience longer than you have. I contrast the guys at my table with a commercial I saw this week on ESPN for a product called Alpha King. And, and again, the, the issue came up. Are you feeling lethargic? Don't have the energy, the drive that you used to? Looking for peak performance? You know, take this Alpha King. You know, look to the hills, or to the pills, as it were. <laughs> a testosterone-fueled pill that can fix this problem, like, because it's a problem, because if, you, if your body's breaking down, if you're not at peak performance, man, there's something wrong, something wrong with you, you better fix it. I felt like the guy was yelling at me. <laughs> now, perhaps if peak physical performance is all that it means to be a man, then I guess I really do have a crisis on my hands. But I don't think I do. And the men at my table last week reassured me of that. You know, because they were able to say, well, look, you know, we've lost way more energy and physical capability than you have. But you know what? We're good. They're actually fine. And they exuded that. They've lost a lot more than I have in one realm, but man, their pilgrimage, their long obedience is stronger than ever. So reassuring to me. The thing that matters most in their lives, the company of God, the relationship with God, the walk with God is actually stronger than ever. And man, was that reassuring to me. Because the thing that actually matters most once we're on pilgrimage, the pilgrimage itself, it can never be wrecked by anything, no matter what else in our life gets wrecked by the things that come our way. The watching, loving care of God does not. And I know many of you have suffered a lot of the things that are common to the human experience. And I also know many of you have suffered things that are uncommon, uncommonly hard. And yet you're here. You're here. You know that God is still with you. You know that your pilgrimage has not been wrecked, even though everything else may have. Because it can't be. That is the promise of Psalm 121. You're still here. That's the providence of God. His loving, watchful care over our lives that we can never lose, no matter what else we may lose. I think God's providence, you know, it's a fancy word, but it shouldn't just be a concept or an idea. It's something that I think can fundamentally change us, can change our hearts as it works our way into our souls, into our beings, into our thinking and our psyche. I want to suggest a few ways that we can be different. We can be transformed by knowing God's providence is watching over us. One, in light of God's providence, we can rest assured that God is already and always paying attention. He's always paying attention to us. Peterson describes the worship that would take place on the mountains and the hills, the high places, as a, a commotion, really, as we heard. They were really flamboyant, loud ceremonies that would take place because the idea was that Baal, for instance, uh, the prevailing deity, was, was often asleep. He was known for taking long naps and needed to be woken up. And so there was a lot of hemming and hawing and jumping up and down and hollering and, and really dramatic stuff that would happen on the high places in order to get the God's attention to get the help you need. 
Baal was known for taking naps. There's a, an incident in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah is having a kind of a confrontation with some worshipers of Baal. And the, the Baal worshipers are jumping up and down, being loud, cutting themselves, and, and there's no response. Elijah says, well, maybe you need to shout louder. You know, perhaps he's asleep. Maybe he's preoccupied or busy. Maybe he's on the bathroom. Is kind of a literal Hebrew translation. Uh, and the, it kind of sounds like he's poking fun at them, but the, the Baal worshipers aren't really offended by this. They actually do start shouting louder because that's what they think. That is the prevailing worldview. They've been conditioned that, that gods are, are asleep or, or negligent and you really have to work hard to get their attention. Well, that is not the case with the Lord. We don't have to do that with him. He who watches over you, we're told, will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's repeated there for emphasis to a people who need to know this, that God's not asleep on the job, and God is not aloof or distant, that you need to wake him up or get his attention. He already is giving us his attention. We already have it. We don't have to wake him up or rouse him by hooting and hollering or jumping up and down or performing outrageous acts of religious piety and devotion in order to get the attention and the care of God. We already have it. Jesus said it this way when he was teaching his disciples how to pray. He said, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans who think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is who we're dealing with here, not a distant, impersonal deity who's unpredictable and who we need to shake our fist at to get to care, but a father who already knows everything we need before we even ask. That's how we can come to him, resting assured that he is paying attention, already watching us in every moment. Often when trouble comes, we have it backwards. We think we somehow need to get God on the case. We need to get God to understand what we're going through and pay attention to us when it's totally backwards. Trouble often is an opportunity for us to learn to pay more attention to God who's already paying attention to us. We don't need to get him on the case. He's already there. If there's an attention gap in our walk with God, it's not on his part. It's generally on ours. And a life of pilgrimage is not one of shouting out at God to get involved in our lives, but it's one of learning to be attentive to the God who is already attentive to us and learning to turn to the God who is already watching over us. We can rest assured that he's doing that. Second, in addition to knowing that he's already paying attention, we can then turn to God in the present, in what we're going through. About half the references in Psalm 121 to God's watching over and care are present tense. He watches over you. Something he's currently doing right now, it's a present reality, something that that is happening. Sometimes we can trust God with our past, kind of deal with stuff in our past, or maybe we want to trust God with our hereafter, with our future, but God is inviting us to trust him with our present, to turn to him right now with whatever's going on in our lives. Sometimes I think we categorize things into stuff God probably cares about and stuff that he probably doesn't care about. It's always a false distinction, though. Maybe some of us think, little old me and my life and my situation, you know, why would God care about that? I mean, he's got bigger fish to fry, like running the world, you know, doesn't, isn't there bigger things for God to worry about than me and, and my situation? We dismiss that, but it's a false thing. In fact, Eugene Peterson says this, 
The only serious mistake we can make when illness comes, when anxiety threatens, when conflict disturbs our relationships, is to conclude that God has gotten bored looking after us and has shifted his attention to a more exciting Christian. That's the only serious mistake we can make in the face of trouble, to think, oh, God just probably doesn't care about me right now. He's on to bigger and better things, not me. That's not true. Or perhaps we separate the the so-called spiritual things that God's probably into from the day-to-day life that we're living. Yeah, God's in the business of like saving souls and stuff like that. And but you know, I got a business to run, I got decisions to make, I got finances to, to work on, I got relationships to sort out. You know, what does God really know about that stuff? Is he really into that? Oh yeah. He is. That's always been a, a dichotomy that people have made, you know, the really spiritual stuff that God's probably into and then day-to-day life where we have to maybe turn to some other stuff. It was true for the, the people originally praying this psalm. And oh yeah, the Lord, he's the one who like parted the Red Sea and delivered our people from Egypt a really long time ago and made us a nation. That's great. And he'll probably ultimately deliver us in some grand form later on. But you know, in the meantime, I got crops to grow. I need rain in order for that to happen. I need protection from cruel enemies. I need fertility in order to carry on my family line. You know, I got practical concerns. And so, um, you know, Baal seems to offer something, or Asher seems to offer something. The hills were crying out with promises of quick fixes to all the, the day-to-day life. But God wants us to turn to him with all of it. All of it. And believe me, he's got the bandwidth. Both for great global catastrophes and situations and for what seems small and trivial in your own life. He can handle all of it. And actually, his watchful eye is over every bit of it. We don't need to make distinctions between stuff God cares about and stuff God either doesn't care about because it's not important enough or it's not spiritual enough. The totality of your life is something that he wants you to bring to him and turn to him in the midst of. Pilgrimage, again, is learning where to look when we have trouble, where to look for our help. And learning over time that it's God, it's the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and not not the mountains, not the hills, but him who knows us best and is always watching over us. But not only can we turn to him in the present, though, Knowing God's providence, we can also trust God for the future. Trust God for the future. The other half of Psalm 121, this watching over, is not just a present reality, but something that's promised for later. The Lord will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. You don't have to worry that that's going to stop or run out or go someplace down the road. God's watchful eye and loving care over our lives is something that will last forever into the future. That's how we can trust God for the future. We can't trust that the future will be awesome, that God will make a wonderful, comfortable future that goes all the way that we'd like it to and the way that we planned. We can't trust the future itself, but we can sure trust that God will be there and that whatever the future holds will not unravel or wreck his loving, watchful eye over us will not tear us apart. Nothing has the ability to wreck this pilgrimage, and nothing can separate us from God. That kind of assurance, that sort of trust in in God in the future, in light of the future, in light of what may come, is a deeply powerful thing, and it's a contagious thing that we need. Again, that's why it's good to spend time with people who've been on this journey longer. So assuring to be at that table at the men's breakfast 
with guys who could say, oh yeah, the future involves you breaking down even more, but it's going to be all right because God is still there. In fact, probably more powerfully present to you than he is now. It's going to be all right. That kind of trust is contagious. Not even just what they said, but what what they embody. Now, by contrast, though, the opposite of this kind of trust is also contagious. And it spreads like an epidemic in our culture today. I read a book recently called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. It's a secular academic book. It addresses a lot of different trends in culture now, but one of them is, is this kind of weird trend that's happening in which, by and large, American kids or young people coming up today in America um, are growing up in the, a world that's safer than it's ever been. Not every individual case or situation or setting, of course, but by and large, on the whole, by any metric, we're coming up in a, in a world that's safer than it's ever been. And yet, young people today are more anxious than any generation that's come before. Like, exponentially so, and rising, even as, even as things get actually safer, anxiety rises. And there's a lot of different factors for this. A lot of many uh, of causes working together in a complex way to, to bring this sort of thing about. But one of the main factors in this trend is anxious adults who are everywhere, lurking with danger around the corner, whether it's kind of alarmist media members or fear-mongering politicians or Helicopter parents, boy do I see this in my work with college students, but it starts much, much earlier than that. Just lurking everywhere, hovering constantly with a sense that danger lurks around every corner. That's contagious. It tells young people you should be anxious and you should be afraid because things are not safe. Now this book offers a few suggestions for some behavior changes on the part of grown-ups and institutions in our country. I think they're worth taking into consideration, but I'm not sure the behavior changes are possible without a deep-rooted change of heart on our part. A heart that begins to trust in the providence of God, in a God who's bigger than our biggest fears, in a God who actually watches over us now and into the future, whatever the future may hold. That kind of heart change is is imperative if we're to instill this sort of trust in young people now. I'm not advocating for just being reckless or negligent. I'm all for bike helmets and seat belts and medicine and Cori checks for volunteers and parental controls for devices. All of these things are very important. They're part of being caring, responsible, loving adults for young people. But are we compounding our efforts to make things safe with, a, with a, a constant anxiety that comes along with it? Or are we working to be good, caring, responsible adults while also instilling in our young people a sense that, you know, there's a God that you can trust and that you can turn to. And when you need help, you can lift your eyes up to this God. And we can't necessarily know that the future is 100% safe and nothing bad will ever happen to you, but you know, there is a God who is good and will be good through all of that. And you can turn to him. You can trust in him. You can talk to him when you're in trouble, whatever the trouble may be, there's a God you can trust. You know, do we also communicate that? Because I think that sort of deep-seated trust can be contagious as well. But it's not just our words, it's our lives. 
Are we embodying that kind of trust? Do we trust God with our future? Whatever may happen, whatever may come our way, do we believe that he is watching over us and that he'll never let us out of his sight? If we believe that, it'll, it'll work its way out in a way that is contagious in a good way. Eugene Peterson writes this, Once we get this psalm in our hearts, it will be impossible for us to gloomily suppose that being a Christian is an unending battle against ominous forces that at any moment may break through and overpower us. Instead, it is the solid, massive, secure experience of a God who guards our life now and always. That's the pilgrimage and the journey with Jesus, not an unending battle against ominous forces that might get the best of us someday, but actually the solid, massive, secure experience of a God who guards our life now and always. And nothing can take that away from us. I want to close with one more quote that will be on the screen. This is from the New Testament, from the letter to the Romans by the Apostle Paul. And this is a call to trust God with the future, really. Let's read this together. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Let's pause there. So, Paul's not saying all our problems are going to go away. In fact, he lists problems that are very real for him and the people that he's writing to. All this stuff was real in their lives. On, on account, for the sake of their faith in Jesus, they were facing death all day long. The specific things he names, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. This was a part of their lives. This came with the package. That's what pilgrimage entailed for them. So he wasn't promising all this stuff is going to go away. But the question is, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Any of these things? Let's read on. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That, that covers anything your future might hold. And I'm not going to stand up here and promise anything about your future and how good and promising it might be, because I really don't know, but I can promise you this. Nothing it holds will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Amen.